Go ahead and turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I completely understand the challenge of the hour. We're about to have dinner. Some of you will only be thinking about dinner. I would encourage you not to be so carnal. (laughs) And to do your best to give yourself to the Word of God. But there's another challenge, and that is we are going to plow through a large section that is that is not a fun section. But I think that it's important in understanding the flow of the book. And so, um, after dinner, while you're good and sleepy, we will look at God of my good days and bad, which will be, um, I think, encouraging. We're going to start reading in uh, chapter 3. and We're going to pick up in verse 15, even though we covered that. This is the word of the living God. That which is has been already, and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what has passed by. Furthermore, I've seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. For a time for every matter and for every deed is there. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there's no advantage for man over beast, for all is vapor. All go to the same place. All came from the dust, and all returned to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward, and the breath of the beast ascends downward to the earth. I have seen that nothing is better than that the man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot, For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Then I looked at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead." who were already dead, more than the living, who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who never existed, who's never seen the evil activity that's done under the sun. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is Havel and shepherding the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of striving, of labor and striving after the wind. Then I looked again at vapor under the sun. 
There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vapor, and it is a grievous task. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. A poor lad, a poor yet wise lad, is better than an old foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison, that is the young lad, to become king even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I've seen all the living under the sun thronged to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him, for this too is vapor and striving after the wind. And that is the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for that that declaration of triumph that we just sang. Christ has defeated every sin. Father, how we thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ who is our victorious King. And Father, we pray even now in this hour that You would give us ears to hear that you would help me. Father, I desperately need your help and the help of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, Father, that you would just overflow us with an abundance of grace and mercy right now and that you would instruct us in your word and sanctify us in the truth. Thy word is truth. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So we saw last hour, chapter 3 introduces to us uh, this, this picture of the comprehensive sovereignty of God, that God's making all things beautiful in its time, that God has put eternity into our hearts, and then God has given us the task to want to understand, to want to know what He is doing, but God has withheld the ability for us to completely understand what He is doing. And so the call is not to try to figure out the divine plan, but to, to, but to trust the divine planner and to rejoice and to do good and to just keep working and fear Him and in a sense leave the results to God. And so there is this, there is this wonderful sense of um, just a, a confidence that God is really making something beautiful in His time. But then verse 15, which is, is very difficult to translate, seems to indicate that, that the way things have been, that's the way they always will be, But God is not going to actually leave things behind. That is, even though there is this cyclical nature, we're going to find out that has to do with oppression and injustice, there is a sense in which God Himself is going to, as it were, make things right. And so, again, David Gibson 
living life backwards, said it is all the events of human history that time is chased away into the past, and to us they are gone and lost forever, but not to God. He will dial back time and fetch the past and bring it into the present in order to bring it into account. And so that verse now introduces a series of of, of really depressing pictures. We're going to look at things like injustice and oppression and rivalry and loneliness and the reason. So, so what Solomon is doing, the reason why he transitions to this section is because anybody who is realistic in this life will say, that's all fine and good, I believe it, I believe God is sovereign, I believe God is doing something, but let's face it, at the end of the day, there is really painful stuff that happens in this world. And so the question that is going to be posed by bringing up each of these, in a sense, dark portraits, is do these things threaten the beauty of God's plan... And do these things actually threaten my ability to enjoy this short, vaporous life? And I don't know about you, but again, it seems to me Kohelet could have been written in the 21st century because he is dealing with things that we deal with day in and day out. And so... The first thing, the first what we could call the first challenge to God making everything beautiful is injustice. So if you think about the word shalom, the word shalom is, is peace, wellness, wholeness. In a sense, uh, Cornelius Plantinga in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, talks about shalom as the way things are supposed to be. And that sin is, in a sense, the way things are not supposed to be. And so injustice or oppression is not the way things are supposed to be. The picture that Solomon paints for us is one where, where wickedness has, has really just shoved justice out of the way. Wickedness has then replaced righteousness. And so in God's world, the way things are supposed to be is they are supposed to be just and righteous. Injustice and evil are not the way things are supposed to be. And yet we live in a world where where people are willing to abuse the widow and the orphan for a buck, and he's will, and man is willing to take advantage of the elderly for a mere loaf of bread, and he's willing to take a bribe and pervert justice, and he's willing to let his pride govern over his principles, and he lives by the law of the jungle, which is void of justice and righteousness, and lawlessness is the law of the land. The thinking person is going to say, as I look around and I see injustice, and I see the way that injustice has pushed righteousness and justice completely to the side, kicked it to the curb, I want to know, is there ever going to come a time where justice will really prevail? And then the underlying question, innocence, could be something like this. Does this not ruin... 
God making everything beautiful in His time. Does this not dampen my ability to enjoy life as a gift? I mean, let's face it. There are, there are things that happen in this world. We are relatively sheltered from those things, but the things that happen in this world will turn any thinking person's stomach. When we think of the slaughter of unborn babies and the, and the stamp of approval that our, that our states give to that, we are living in a time where injustice has pushed justice out of the way. Let's face it, in our land, there is no justice for the unborn. This is the world in which we live. Time would fail if we talked about sex trafficking. And time would fail if we talked about slavery. And time would fail if we talked about domestic abuse. And time would fail if we started to catalog all of the injustices that are all around us. And the question is, Lord, how in the world can you say you're making all things beautiful and you call me to enjoy this short, vaporous life when there is so much pain because of injustice. And so, does it ruin God's beauty? Solomon's answer is no. Why? Payday someday. Payday someday. The old Southern Baptist preacher, R.G. Lee, Scott's great-grandpa, right? (laughs) Preached a famous sermon, Payday Someday, right? And every person that's a Southern Baptist should listen to that sermon. Is that true? And even if you're not Southern Baptist, you should listen to that sermon. And so, payday someday is, is a truth that, that God is going to make things right someday. Now, the people in, in, in Kohelet's day, they had sort of a misperception, and that was that people got what they deserved in this life. So, whether punishment or reward, you got what you deserved under the sun. Solomon does not go there. He actually is not that naive. Why? Because he knows people in this life don't always get what they deserve. Thanks be to God, you didn't get what you deserved and I haven't got what I deserved. But there's coming a day when the wicked will in fact get what they deserve. God is going to judge both the righteous and the wicked. That's what Solomon says in verse 17. And even that is a part of his plan. Judgment, payday someday, is one of those appointed events that God Himself has established. And I want to say, in a real sense, it is the appointment of that day of judgment that is part of Him making all things beautiful in its time. And so, as our heart aches, we realize there's coming a day where God's going to open the books. And nobody is going to escape His notice. Now, Solomon goes on in verses 18 to 20, and this is really, this is really depressing. Man the beast is a vapor. 
So what, what's happening in 18 to 20 is God tests man to show him that he is actually a beast. So after the fall, human beings went from being pristine image bearers now to actually closer to the animals than to God. One commentator puts it like this. He says, God proves to humanity through the recurring curse of death that we're animals, finite animals, who are also merely God's creation, equally subject to His will, equally dust, equally distant from His infinite transcendence. Remember reading in A.W. Tozer's book, Knowledge of the Holy, you and I... The, the, the lowest earthworm has more in common with an archangel than with God. Right? Creator, creature. And so, here's the picture of man. And then, so, as man, as beast, in a sense, sees even the wise die, the fool and the stupid die, they also perish, and then they leave their wealth to others. We've read Psalm 49, which echoes this, speaking of um, of, of the uh, wicked. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they are called lands by their... The, although they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. And Solomon says something here that actually is quite stunning. He says, you know, man and beast have the same breath. That is, they have the same life-animating principle, if you will, and they end up going to the same place. That is, they both end up going to the grave. That is, they go back into the ground. They go to the dust from which they came. And there's something that's underlying this section, which you could say something like this. The man who lives like a dog will die like one too. And so as the beast dies, so does the human. No benefit, no advantage. Everything is mere breath. Now I see that you guys have a lot of deer in Missouri, but they all seem to be dead on the side of the road. Okay. Dead deer? Guess what? Dead man. Both die. Both have, both have a a bodily composition that will just go right back to the dust. Daniel Frederick says, dust and breath are not a stable combination. And so, Solomon is getting after the fact that as long as man perverts justice and perverts righteousness, he's like an animal. He's not like an image bearer. Now, verse 21 has caused a lot of consternation for people, and maybe we can clear that up. Notice it says, who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. I want to suggest to you that verse 21 is not Kohelet asking the question as it appears to be. You read the book of Ecclesiastes, is Kohelet agnostic about the afterlife? The answer is no. In fact, chapter 12, we all have to be uh, stand before the judgment of God, give an account for the things that we've done. There is a, a, a doctrine of the afterlife in Ecclesiastes, and Kohelet is not ignorant of that. So I don't think for a minute that Kohelet is having this like this agnostic moment where he goes, "Who knows?" <laughs> 
I don't know. Do you know? You don't know. Who knows whether the breath of a man returns to God who gave it and the breath breath of a beast goes back to the earth. And so Dwayne Garrett, the commentator, says Ecclesiastes does not deny the afterlife but does force the reader to take death seriously. So Kohelet is not making some agnostic sentiment about the afterlife but rather he is expressing... And this is how I would understand it. He is expressing the almost universal ignorance and neglect of the afterlife among the sons of men. He's not questioning whether there's life after death. He's questioning whether or not the ordinary guy on the street knows about that reality or even thinks about it. As he lives like a beast, you know what he does? He lives as if he denies that one of these days his spirit will return to God. And then Solomon says in verse 22, I have seen that nothing is better than that a man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot for who will bring him to see what will occur after him. Are you starting to get the picture here? Solomon takes you on this bumpy ride. He jars you around a little bit, kicks you around, knocks you down, makes you feel terrible, and then says, but you know, at the end of the day, just enjoy life. (laughs) So, enjoy life despite injustice. That refrain, nothing better, this is the good than to be happy in your activities. This is the lot that God has given you. This is what God has given to you. And then, of course, you die. You live this short life, you enjoy it, then you die, and here's the great thing, you don't know what's going to happen with all your stuff afterwards, which, of course, he agonized about back in chapter 2, but what can you do about it? The answer is nothing. So this section, you could say, injustice and even death do not bring God's beauty into disrepute. Should injustice anger us? And the answer is yes. Should wickedness in this world anger us? And the answer is yes. Should there be a part of us that, that, that aches over the fact that things are not the way they ought to be? And the answer is yes. But the reality is, is that man is a brute beast. After the fall, he dies. God will judge him in his time. And the perfect execution of that justice will in fact be part of God making all things beautiful. So, don't let that suck all of the joy out of life. There was this wonderful young lady in our church. She grew up in our church and she became a missionary. But the, and, and maybe you've met people like this at times. We, we should be called to be sympathetic people and, and we should mourn with those who mourn. But sometimes you meet somebody and they just take upon themselves the weight of everybody else and the weight of all that's wrong with the world, right? And they just sink themselves down into it. 
And so we're never the kind of people that accept injustice. We're never the kind of people that actually tolerate oppression. But we're also the kind of people that have a confidence in God in such a way that I'm not going to let this drive me down into the ground so that all of the joy of life in this short life is sucked out of life. Now Solomon goes on and he goes from injustice to oppression. This is really terrible. The oppressed and the oppressors. So Walt Kaiser says, Another complaint emerges to threaten the beauty of the plan of God. It's oppression. And so Solomon uh, paints the, the pictures of acts of oppression. And then he brings up the tears of the oppressed. And he makes this comment, and there was no one to comfort them. And then he turns around and he says, and the oppressors, they have all the power. And then he echoes again that for the oppressed, there was no one to comfort them. And so here's, here's the, the heartbreaking thing, is that the oppressed do not have the opportunity to simply enjoy the labor that God has given to them as a gift because there are other people who are taking advantage of them, beating them down, and the most basic of God's gifts are violently ripped from them. And Solomon says, and nobody does anything about it. Nobody even steps forward to comfort them. Solomon says, I stop and I think about people who oppress other people, people who oppress the widow, people who oppress the orphan, people who oppress the foreigner, people who oppress those who are not in a position to stand up, and I think about them, and you know what I conclude? I come up with a really dark conclusion based on this empirical observation, and that is, death or even non-existence would be better than living like that. Death or or not even ever taking a breath in this life would be better than the suffering that is brought upon others by inhumane beasts. And so to hear the cries of the oppressed and to see their tears too often seems like it's too much to bear in this life. And Kohelet says, you know, as I think about that, death and maybe even non-existence seems like a better alternative. Timothy Keller wrote a book back in 1989 called Ministries of Mercy. Listen to these words doesn't matter what you think of Tim Keller, alright? Just listen to the words. Only a small number of people in the history of the world have lived in relatively safe conditions. War, injustice, oppression, famine, natural disaster, family breakdown, disease, mental illness, physical disability, 
racism, crime, scarcity of resources, class struggle. These social problems are the result of our alienation from God. They bring deep misery and violence to the lives of most humanity. The majority of people who read this book, however, probably belong to the relatively small group of folk who through God's kindness lead an existence generally free from these forces. This comparative comfort can isolate us in a fictitious world where suffering is difficult to find. But this isolation is fragile for suffering surrounds us even in the suburbs. Now, you ever read some of the Psalms and think, wow, um, break out their teeth? Crush them? Make their children orphans, their wives widows. We call those the imprecatory psalms. And you know there are um, there are silly uh, explanations. Um, C.S. Lewis, by the way, in a book that's otherwise good, Reflections on the Psalms, actually. Um, pardon the expression, but he blows chunks on the imprecatory psalms. Okay, um, he says they're sub-Christian. Okay, he says that they belong to an ethic of the Old Testament that's no longer applicable in the New Testament. And I want to say that that's absolute rubbish. One of the reasons why the imprecatory psalms strike us as as shocking and sub-Christian is because we don't live in a in an environment where some warring tribe that happens to be muslim and we're christian and they come over and they rape wives and daughters and then sell your children into slavery you live in that world you pray god take the fangs out of the lion's mouth You live in that world and you see real evil. The only evil that we often see is sanitized. It's the the evil that the media wants us to see. We're distant from it. If you are right in it and you look evil in the face, then you pray, God, let your kingdom come and with it may justice be done to those who are oppressing the oppressed. I actually think that we should be much more regular in praying the imprecatory psalms. And so we do. God, either save that abortionist or wipe him off the face of the earth. Right? I'm going to tell you, that's a righteous prayer. If you're like a pacifistic, pietistic person, that sounded terrible. But I also want to say, in the midst of the worst kind of injustice and oppression, the oppressed cry out to God, vindicate your people. And you know how we know it's a righteous prayer? Because the saints who are in heaven, the souls of those who are under the altar, they are the spirits of men made, the perfect spirits of men made who are just. They actually cry out, how long, O Lord, until you avenge those who have shed our blood on the earth? 
And so, as Kohelet wrestles with this, our heart should, should actually just ache over the injustice and the oppression that exists in this death row cell under the sun. These things actually do, in fact, pose a real challenge to us and to the beauty of God. But again, none of it gets past God. Nothing escapes His notice. And although we should fight against the injustice and the oppression, thanks be to God, even injustice and oppression is a breath. And at the end of the day, there's something bigger and there's something more permanent than the injustice and the oppression of sinful men. And it's the justice of God. And so Solomon says, take heart, Christian. Take heart, believer. Continue to enjoy the life that God has given you because justice and oppression don't rob God of glory. Now that brings us to another kind of challenge. The next three challenges to enjoying life and labor as a gift and seeing God make all things beautiful are now self-imposed. Injustice and oppression are, are imposed on people from the outside. The next three challenges are going to be challenges that are self-imposed. And the first one, notice chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is Havel and striving after the wind. So Kohelet, in a sense, what he does here, he shifts gears and he moves from the cruelty that exists because of oppression to now the cruelty that exists because of idolatrous competition. So labor is a gift, Right? Solomon has already told us multiple times, enjoy that labor that God has given you. It's a gift. But if it becomes an idol, if it becomes an idol, then it will begin to do what? It will begin to fuel envy. And so Solomon says, hey, at the end of the day, it's a vapor. It's also like trying to shepherd the wind. When you try to actually make more than your neighbor, be better than your neighbor, be on the top, you know, the um, um, keeping, not just keeping up with the Jones, leaving the Jones in the dust. Alright? If that's, if that's the goal of your work, if that's the goal of your labor, then Solomon says, that is, that is vapor and you will never achieve what you think you're going to achieve by being like this. I mean, after all, how long can you stay on top? How much enjoyment can you actually get from making sure that all your competitors are beaten back down the hill? At the end of the day, what's the point of having the top bunk in the death row cell? And so Solomon is ruthless. And this is a guy that poured himself into his work, right? And so he says, I see that there's this rivalry. And so here's a guy, and what does he want? He just wants to be better than his neighbor, have more than his neighbor. And that is absolute folly. You'll never achieve it. And so then he turns around, and what he's doing in verse 5 is he's anticipating... Somebody else saying, oh, well, then what you mean? He says, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. 
So if rivalry drives idolatrous labor, he turns around in verse 5 and rebukes idleness. You could imagine, especially in our culture, it's not that hard. Somebody hears verse 4 and goes, yeah, that's really bad. You know what? I think what that means is I should probably live in my parents' basement and play video games. (laughs) By the way, folding the hands is a picture in Proverbs of idleness, right? You're supposed to have busy hands, folding hands. Uh, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. Your poverty will come upon you like a robber, right? And so Solomon turns around and he says, Okay, so if, if, if rivalry and, and, and this, this competitive spirit is, is no good for you, I'm telling you, idleness is not good for you either. In fact, that's pure folly and it's self-destructive. Do you know what laziness is? Do you know what being a sluggard is? Do you know the the condition of the person who is just going to lay back and fold their hands? It's a form of self-cannibalization. And what we're doing is we're raising up an entire nation of people that are cannibalizing themselves. As we remove the necessity to work, as we remove the dignity to work, as we replace it with entitlements and handouts, what we're doing is we're teaching people not only to be sluggards, but self-cannibalizing sluggards. And so, excessive toil, on the one hand, is foolish and, and counterproductive, but on the other hand, Laziness is foolish too because you end up starving to death. And so Solomon gives us in a sense sort of the what you could call the golden means. If working yourself to death out of a competitive spirit is bad and being lazy is bad, there's a golden means. And it's in verse 6. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. In other words, Kohelet's telling us, don't become so consumed with envy and rivalry and work your life away because you just want to be richer, but don't sit at home and be a couch potato either. Here's the way to enjoy life and escape both extremes. And that is, balance your toil with rest. Take a day off. Remember the Sabbath. Take some rest and relaxation. Rest and relaxation is vital in order for us to enjoy the gift. A day of rest is vital for us to be enabled to enjoy our work. I'm like the worst person to be preaching this to you right now. For over 20 years, I refuse to take a day off. And you know why? Well, I was raised to work hard. If I'm not doing something productive, I feel guilty. 
So I think, you know what? You, do something. Okay? Don't just, don't just do something that makes no difference like clean the garage. <laughs> do something that's going to be monumental. Significant. And one of my fellow pastors challenged me. And he said, I think you're breaking the fourth commandment by never resting. So now I take a day off. Kinda. Okay? Right? Yeah. And it's Mondays, which seems to make sense, right? And I'm thankful for it. But when I was in seminary, I had a work ethic that was one of excessive toil. And I was, I was driven to have the perfect grade point average. I was driven to get an A on every exam that I took. And there's my poor wife with our little baby and she would say, can you take Saturday off so that we can go to Canby and go to the park and have a picnic? And I would say, I have a Hebrew exam on Tuesday. And I crushed her over and over and over again. Brother, we have the same story here. Okay, well... Maybe I'll just sit down and let you tell yours. I don't, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I kind of feel the same at this point right now, knowing. So, there came a point where I realized that what I was striving for was just simply idolatrous. Simply idolatrous. You should, you should have seen me when my beginning Hebrew professor, who was not a professor and shouldn't have been teaching Hebrew, was completely unqualified. The man never should have actually even entered into a seminary. Can you see I'm still bitter about this? <laughs> and he gave me a B, and I was a half a percent away from an A, and I'd done the extra work. Can you believe this? I went into his office and I was furious. And so I I still pray imprecatory psalms against this guy. I don't even know where he is today. But this this is what Kohelet would have said to Brian Borgman in seminary. Brian, forget the forget the A. Forget the A. Spend some time with your wife and with your kid. Rest. You're not proving anything to anybody other than that you're a covetous idolater. And so Solomon says, you you really want to enjoy life? Hey, fill one hand with toil and fill the other hand with rest. Because that one hand filled with rest is far better than having both hands full of toil. You're not equipped to enjoy life until you know how to rest and relax. You say, that sounds so unspiritual. Well, you know, 
I, I want to say that sometimes our standard of spirituality is really messed up. We have this idea, you know, hey, I'd rather, I'd rather burn out than rust out or something like that. As if taking a day off, man, I'm going to start being covered with corrosive rust and I'm going to just drop dead because I rusted out. It's a fiction. It's a fiction. Learn to take vacation. I'm on vacation at Bandon one, one year and a good friend of mine, Steve Fernandez, who pastored in Vallejo, California, godly man, actually he, he, uh, he died of brain cancer a few years ago. And uh, he calls me one day and I, I see Steve's calling. So I take my little flip phone. I'm like, hey, Steve. He goes, what are you doing? I said, um, we're on vacation. This was Steve. How long are you on vacation for? Two weeks. That's nonsense. You need to take at least three weeks. <laughs> I said, well, why? He goes, the first week, your mind and heart still back at church. You're, the second week, you're starting just to begin to relax. But as that second week starts to wind down, you know you got to go back. All of a sudden, you start to get amped up again. It's that third week that's the sweet spot for your soul. So I went back and told my elders... But now, you know, if you get, if, if you have it built into the Constitution that you get, uh, you know, every five years you get another week, I get like half of the year off now, right? <laughs> and so, so here is this, this picture where Solomon says, listen, you gotta take some rest. There's nothing holy about working yourself to death. Now, verses 7 to 12 bring up what we could simply call loneliness. So, this, the solitary soul that's being pictured here in these verses, um, he's not accepting God's gift. He has, in a sense, he's got two handfuls of toil and none of enjoyment, and it is absolutely tragic. So, verses 7 and 8, we end up having a picture of a guy who we could say he's married to his work. So Kohelet says, I saw again vapor in this life. One person who has no dependence, right? So he has no son, no brother. We're assuming no son means also no wife. And yet, here's a guy who has nobody. And what is he doing? There is no end to his toil. And on top of that, here's a guy who has nobody. And what is he doing? He's never satisfied with money. But at the end of the day, he never asks the right question. Kohelet says, this is a vapor, and by the way, it is a really lousy job. Even though there's nobody for him to share his life with, this lonely person does what? He devotes himself to endless labor. We would say that the person's not only married to their work, we'd say the person's a workaholic. He's so wrapped up in doing his work, in doing his business, doing whatever occupies him to make the money, it never occurs to him to ask a good question like, what am I doing all this work for? It never occurs to him to say, who am I doing this for? Derek Thomas, 
reports that John Paul Getty, right before his death, said, I've never known love or what it means to have a friend. A guy that had more money than all the money represented in this room put together. I've never known love or what it means to have a friend. One writer puts it like this. He says, a man works hard to make a pile and he doesn't stop to ask the very basic question, why am I doing this? He can't afford to marry nor have children because they would take him away from his work. He cannot afford to have friends because all their motives would be suspect. He could buy dinner for everyone in the restaurant, but no one wants to sit with them. And that's all right because he doesn't want to sit with them either. A lonely life is a sad life no matter how much money a person has. This is, this is a kind of self-inflicted misery. Samuel Johnson said to be unhappy at home is the ultimate result of all ambition. Hmm. And so Solomon, in order to remedy this kind of loneliness that is, that is just consumed with a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, and then I'll finally be happy, and it is this illusion, it's chasing the wind, Solomon turns around and he talks in verses 9-12 to 12 about the blessing of companionship. Famous passage. Sometimes couples want it read at their, at their wedding. But here's, here's the, the long and short of it. Companionship is also the gift of God. And companionship makes both labor and toil sweeter. Right? Companionship. It makes this life and labor sweeter. And there's, of course, these, these wonderful images. You know, two are better than one. They have a good return for their labor. Entering into a partnership with somebody. Uh, there's the safety. If one of them falls, he lifts the other companion up. Woe to the one who falls. And there's no one to lift him up, right? So there's safety here. If they lie down together, they keep warm. How can they keep warm alone? This, this by the way, is not like camping advice. You could imagine anyway. It's just that friendship is invaluable. Friendship is protection against the coldness and the harshness of this world. There's also safety and protection in that one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist. And then that famous text, a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. I want to just say... If you pay really close attention, you will realize that Kohelet has not said, and this too is Havel and chasing after the wind. In other words, 
There's something about companionship. There's something about friendship that has a substance, that has a weight to it. And there is, there is this, there is this perspective that simply says companions and friends in this life actually make life sweeter. Marshall Siegel, who writes for Desiring God, says the absence of good friends slowly starves everything else we do. Did you hear that? The absence of good friends slowly starves everything else we do. A husband without good friends will be a worse husband. A mother without good friends will be a worse mother. A pastor, a doctor, a teacher, an engineer will all be less effective at their callings without the support and camaraderie of friends. Friendship is a blessing from the Lord that helps us navigate this short, vaporous life and to get through it. Hugh Black, an old Scottish writer, says, "...to have a heart that we can trust." and into which we can pour our griefs, our doubts, and our fears, is already to take the edge from the grief and the sting from doubt and the shade from fear. Joy also demands that it is joy that should be shared. A simple, generous friendship will thus add to the joy and divide the sorrow. Hmm... I have an observation, maybe it's not true in Missouri. <laughs> Oftentimes, as a generalization, women are better at making friends than men are. I don't know, is it true here or not? All the guys might just be like total pals, right? <laughs> I think there's a reason for that. I don't know if you've noticed that. I think it's I think it's true, don't you? <laughs> I'm I'm waiting for your approval to move on, okay? So sometimes it's hard for men to have the kind of companionship that's described here because there are these cultural expectations of what what a man should be there is there are these these uh, false standards of machismo there is this sense of well you know what I can't be too close to that guy people will think you know ooh you know and and so here we are we actually are living we laugh but we're living in a culture where it is hard for men to become friends. And yet friendship is absolutely vital for you to enjoy the gift. David and Jonathan, souls knit together, right? In covenant with one another, seeking each other's good. Boy, you... You need a bosom friend like that. I'm a Jonathan Edwards nut and Edwards' oldest daughter, Esther, writing to a friend. So she's out, so, you know, in the 1720s and 30s, um, uh, Northampton, Connecticut ended up being the frontier. 
susceptible to Indian attacks, disease. And she's there. She writes a friend back in Boston. And she says, the second best thing, or the next best thing to communion with God is having a God-given friend that you can unbosom yourself to. I think Kohelet would give a hearty amen for that. And so it's the, it's the remedy, it's the antidote to the loneliness that can be so consuming. And then we get to one last one, and I don't even know what time I'm supposed to be done, but I'm assuming I'm doing okay. <laughs> 13 to 16. Politics. <laughs> Everybody's like, is it dinner time yet? Right? So the final challenge to joy, <laughs> at least in this section, the final challenge to joy and to making all things beautiful is politics. Okay? So right. So some people, they think, if I could just get the right king, if we could just get the right president, if we could just get the right congress, if we could just get the right senators, everything would be great. It's a vapor. It's chasing the wind. There is actually a peculiar frustration with politics that Kohelet unfolds for us, and he ends up painting this picture, and one that I think that we can relate to fairly well, and that is that in verses 13 to 15, he paints this picture of the popularity of the successor to the old king. Now to be sure, from a biblical perspective, there is one kind of leader or one kind of politician who is better than another. Right? I mean, I don't, I, I have absolutely no doubt that there are better politicians than others. <laughs> I can think of other people who would be better in the White House. I could think of better people to govern our state. I could think of... Right, so, so, so biblically, you, you want people that are better, not worse. Right? But here's, here's the thing. Here comes this guy, and Kohelet's painting this picture. Here comes this guy, and he comes from the people. And he, he, he knows the plight of the people. He's a common man and he's poor and so he understands he understands the plight of, of the challenges of life, but he's a wise man. Now the guy who's in office is an old fool who's been king too long. Or to put it a different way, maybe I won't do that. <laughs> he's a guy who doesn't listen to the people anymore. The text says he doesn't receive instruction. He doesn't receive warning. Why? Because when you're king for too long, in a sense, you forget the ordinary person and you end up having sort of an elitist perspective that says, what does the riffraff know anyway? And so here's this old king who's out of touch and here you have this up and coming guy who's, who's go, who goes from the prison house. Maybe he's there because he's in debtor's prison. Maybe he's there because he's a political prisoner. 
Whatever the case, the guy's a real success story. He goes from the jail cell to the throne, and, and of course we realize that it should often go the other way, from the throne to the jail cell, but we can, we can only dream. <laughs> the guy's got humble origins. Everybody loves him. The, the way Kohelet puts it is, in a sense, there's no end to the people to all who were before them. In other words, there's just like streams of people coming from both sides that just absolutely love him. But then verse 16 introduces us to the unpopularity of the successor because here's the reality. Today's hero is tomorrow's bum. Happy days are here again is a vapor. Walt Kaiser says, the whims of the messages and the reign of the wise are as momentary as the direction of the wind. Now to be sure, some rulers are better than others. And we should want wise, righteous leaders. Right? We should want people that want to serve. We should want people who aren't corrupt. Right? I mean, that's, that's what we should want. But understand that even though we should want good leaders, even though we should in fact resist tyrants, here's, here's the truth. Presidents come and presidents go. And just remember, the great hope for the next election will have his disaffected followers in a matter of very short time. What is it about politics? We want a fresh face. Derek Kidner says, the young king too will go the way of the old king, not necessarily for his faults, but simply his time and familiarity and the restlessness of men make him no longer interesting. And so politics, at the end of the day, brings no lasting change. Should we be good citizens? Should we labor for the good of the city in which we live? Should we actually seek to to see godly people elected? And And I think as Christians, the answer to that should be yes. Should we seek a, a, a society that is, that is just and honors God? And I think the answer is yes. But here's, here's the truth of it. Is that everybody who ever, ever takes a position of authority is a depraved human being. And the people who put them, put him there are depraved human beings. And in a real sense, politics cannot bring lasting change because politics is an all too human endeavor. It doesn't mean we don't try. It doesn't mean we're not engaged. But politics at the end of the day is the debacle of the fickled. (laughs) It challenges our joy. I don't know about you, but election night, maybe I'm the only person in this room. I stay up waiting and waiting and waiting. You know, in the good old days, <laughs> you used to know who won by the time you went to bed. <laughs> right? Right. 
But now they have to count all the secret ballots. <laughs> Happens in our state now almost every election. But it challenges our joy. And if our joy is in a human king, it will always be dashed to the ground. Even if he's the guy that you think, man, this is, this is the next Ronald Reagan. He too will disappoint. There's only one king who will never disappoint his people. There is only one king that we will never look for a fresh face after him. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, not even politics, believe it or not, not even politics can put a dent into the beauty of God's plan. And so, if you're expecting a son of Adam to bring about hope and change, just stop it. (laughs) The reality is, is that none of these challenges, none of the ones that Solomon has mentioned, vandalize God's beauty. There may be dark hues in some of the strokes that the master artist makes. And although we should not be impervious to oppression or injustice, our ultimate hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting how in this section, he switches gears in chapter 5 and then resumes, but isn't it interesting that that the very section that begins with oppression and injustice ends with the reality that no human leader, no political leader, is going to be able to bring lasting change. And so labor and rest and enjoy your friends in the short vaporous life and have imprinted on your heart some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. But as for us... We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that that wicked men and frail men and feeble men and vaporous men cannot undo Your plan. We thank You that no one can thwart Your purposes. And so, Father, we pray that You would help us Lord, especially in the dark days in which we live, we pray that You would help us. We pray that You would give us grace. We pray that You would empower us to enjoy this life, to labor for Your glory, for uh, for our good, and help us to rest and help us to be a good friend. And so, Lord, we pray that You'd set our priorities straight in this short life. In Jesus' name, Amen.